Every once in a while, you, uh, you hear something uh, or learn something that is so counterintuitive that it's got you scratching your head. Like, I, I really can't wrap my mind around that. I think we've seen a lot of that in Revelation, but I, I experienced it um, differently in the last week. I, I was, I don't know, this YouTube video came up and uh, I was, I don't think, I, I don't usually watch stuff like this, so I don't know why, how it showed up, but it was a TED Talk. And it was this guy that um, wanted to dedicate himself to uh, renewable energy and um, saving uh, the Earth's resources and really concerned about the environment. And, and he wanted to dedicate his life to something that was bigger than himself and that would uh, help many people. So he got involved with renewable energy, solar and wind, became a part of uh, different organizations and uh, very deeply involved. Uh, working to establish these sort of uh, these forms of energy, and um, the, and the longer he's he's getting into this, he's still continuing to do research on energy and all that. And at the end, after the end, you know, these are this is a TED talk, so it's under twenty minutes. It's like seventeen minutes, and um, and this guy is really dedicated, really smart, and very dedicated and very passionate about energy and the world and. Um, whatever struggles we may face in the future. And at the end of the whole presentation, um, this guy who's so concerned with the earth came to the conclusion that nuclear energy was the best way forward. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked when I got there and I'm sure not everyone is shocked. And this is only a TED, this one TED talk. And I'm sure this is a matter of debate. That's not the point. Um, you know, he came to the conclusion that it just, uh, he was involved with this huge solar farm in, in California, in the desert. And in order to set this thing up, it, it, they had to move tortoises. And a lot of them didn't make it. They had to actually dig them out of their burrow and move them. A lot of them died. Birds fly over this thing and they combust because of the heat coming off the panels. Um, turbines, uh, wind turbines, all this sort of thing. And plus, if you have cloudy days, there's this surge of energy when there's uh, sunny days and it's hard to know. And he came to, um, after all this research, it was kind of quiet in the room with all these uh, people listening to him. Um, <clears throat> but it was, it, was, it was interesting. And it was one of those moments where I was like, gosh, I did not see that one coming. Um, it's not really part of the narrative uh, that we hear much in our society, um, particularly following, I don't know how long ago, it was the decommissioning um, of uh, the plant down here in Wiscasset, right? Were you involved with that, Bill? No. No, okay. Um, but uh, it was just a head-scratcher. And, and then there were other, you know, it's other videos, you know, the dangers of electric cars and things like that were, were up next, you know. And I didn't, I didn't take the time. Um, but it got me thinking and it, and it was, it reminded me of what we've been reading in Revelation. We have these, um, <clears throat> these head scratching moments, um, in Revelation where we have a book that is written to the first century church. It's using graphic images, um, that symbolize, uh, real world issues and, uh, particularly the Roman empire. Um, and last week we talked about how uh, Revelation will use these big images um, to talk about uh, issues that 
may seem rather mundane, um, but are things that we suffer. So it, it, it lends big and colorful images to our suffering. And I love that because it honors the suffering. Um, things happen that we, you know, people really suffer and we're like really hurt. And uh, Revelation has this way of bringing that hurt and making it huge, turning it into a monster. So in the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire is a dragon. And it's horrible because the first century Christians are suffering under the Roman Empire. And it's pictured as a dragon that devours and um, it's just, uh, it's huge. It brings it to life. And it also brings to life um, faithfulness. Um, and it's pictured as angels singing in the heavens in this heavenly courtroom in this tabernacle. And the four living creatures and the elders around the throne and these songs of praise and uh, the people that have been faithful to Jesus. It, it gets blown up. And I love that because I feel like it, it, it really honors um, faithfulness. And the, and the church is struggling in the first century. And there's a lot of economic pressure. There's a lot of uh, violence. There's, uh, they're, they're struggling. And the call is to remain faithful in, in the face of suffering. And that's one of those head-scratcher moments where it's been like, wow, this is, this is hard. This is hard to swallow sometimes. What, you know, the implications of that. Well, today um, we move on into chapters 15 and 16. They go together and we get to the last seven bowls of judgment. Um, and once again, we're not going, it's, it's not chronological. It's, not chronological. it's going back uh, to the same seven trumpets and the same uh, seven seals but looking at it from a different angle, and, and they've intensified a bit. Um, and there, it begins with a song, and then you have the plagues and the, and the seven uh, judgments. So it's going to read a lot like things that we've already seen. But one of the things that um, is mentioned in this, and it's, a, it's sort of like a bookend, and when you see themes at the beginning of something and at the end of something, they are defining what's happening in the middle. Um, and what you see is mentioned is God's wrath at the beginning of chapter 15 and God's wrath mentioned at the end in chapter 16. And so we're going to do it. We're going to talk about this because I think that these are images that are really hard uh, in our culture to understand and to appreciate. And, um, but that's something that comes up over and over and over again in this book is uh, God's judgment upon the earth. So um, this is more of a sermon on what we need to understand. And I think it will touch on questions that we've had um, if we've been at church for any amount of time. Um, There is certainly some practical application, but um, I want to talk about this idea of uh, God's wrath and God's judgment. Um, And I guess our head-scratching statement of the day here would be, the wrath of God is cause for celebration (laughs) for those in the church. This is a cause for celebration. And I think that we often read it and we push back and we push back and we don't like that sort of image. Yet, in the book, what we see is that the church is celebrating and celebrating and celebrating over and over when we see these images of God's wrath. So we're going to jump right in. And as usual, um, I'm going to read through this uh, and just comment on some of the images that we see. Um, A lot of the themes are what we've already been reading, and so um, we'll just start right in on uh, chapter 15. 
John writes, uh, Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath, there's our theme, to completion. And that's another theme. It's finished. It's, it, we're, we're approaching the end. And in Revelation, what that means is we've got another five chapters of it. The end uh, will go through chapter 20, okay? And we're, all, we're getting that section right now. Um, I saw before me what seemed to be uh, a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. So we saw this number was 666. It's an imperfect number, and it's meant to be a parody. It's not the real thing. I remember, who remembers WKRP in Cincinnati, that show? One, two... (laughs) So in the, in the beginning, uh, as you're getting the credits and everything starting to roll about this, this sitcom about a, a news station in Cincinnati, um, it starts with someone in a car turning uh, the dial uh, to get to WKRP where they're playing the music. And it stops on a news and you see, hear the static and it stops on something else. It stops on a commercial and the commercial says, pure plastic, so don't settle for imitation. You know, and that's, <laughs> and, uh, that's what 666 is. It's something that's not true. Something that's going to promise life, <laughs> um, but it doesn't give life. And so the people we see here are people that have trusted in God, not in uh, something else, not in a parody. Uh, we see that all the time, particularly in a in a capitalist, you know, a, a free market society, in a society like this, everyone wants you to buy their stuff. And so advertisements are geared towards convincing you that you need what they have and it will deliver you in some sort of way. Um, it'll make you a better parent. It'll make you a cooler parent. Uh, it's not going to happen. I'm not getting any cooler. I'm getting <laughs> less and less cool. I was going to say as I get older, but I think it's as my daughters get older. Um, but... Um, so these are the people that did not trust in the beast. And this is an economic thing. They didn't, they didn't buy into what the uh, Roman Empire was selling. Um, and there was a lot of economic pressure and ep- economic uh, oppression. Um, so, and so on this sea, which we saw earlier in the book already, uh, on it stood all the people who had, who had been victorious over the beast. And the way we are victorious over the beast is remaining faithful uh, to God. And his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them. And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And so what we're going to see uh, here, we're going to include in that there's a lot of Exodus themes. And the church would have been, they would have understood this. We don't know how much of the New Testament that we take for granted they would have had readily available to them. But they would have had the Hebrew scriptures. They would have known the story of the Exodus. And that's a story of God coming to a people that are marginalized and oppressed and delivering them against the big empire. Mm -hmm. And so it's a miraculous story. And so that would have been a very powerful one. And John draws on that, the the images from Exodus here. And we have uh, the song of Moses after the Israelites are uh, defeated. And it's sort of a song of vengeance. It's sort of a song that Israel sang that, you know, Pharaoh was defeated. And here we have the song, uh, it kind of shows up, those themes again, in this vision that John has of the church that stands victorious. It says, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, O Lord God Almighty. Uh, just, uh, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name. 
For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. And what's interesting about this is it's not praise over the demise of the beast. It's, it's praise for God. It's not a vengeance song. It's a praise for what God is, is doing. <clears throat> and then I looked and I saw the temple in heaven. God's tabernacle was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple. They were clothed in spotless white linen, gold sashes across their chest. Then one of the four living beings handed each one of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God. There's our theme again. Who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. This reminds us of Isaiah 6 and the call of Isaiah. He has that vision in the temple and there's smoke everywhere and there's angels um, crying, holy, holy, holy. Uh, no one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. And that's, so, temporary, so the temple is temporarily closed. Then. Right. We have this presence of God. Uh, the temple represents the presence of God. And we have the temple. This is where worship happens. Um, <clears throat> and John's having this vision of a heavenly temple, a heavenly tabernacle. Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. So the first angel left the temple and poured out his bowl on the earth, and horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. If we're asking, what does the mark actually look like? We're missing the point. That is not the point of what this is about. The mark of the beast, if we remember, uh, was a parody of uh, Jewish prayer, the Shema. And um, Jews, even to this day, who uh, practice this, uh, they, uh, they put a little box on their, their wrist or their hand and across their forehead, and they recite the Shema, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's a, it's a prayer of commitment. It's a prayer of uh, uh, exalting the oneness of God. And um, here the number is put on the hand and the forehead. So it's a mockery of that. And it's 666. It's, six, six. it's not seven. It's not a complete number. It's not a divine number. It's a very human and uh, a parody of the real thing. Um, so this is Basically, what it's saying is those who have not sold out to the empires that be in this world. <clears throat> so the first angel left the temple, poured out the bowl on the earth, and horrible malignant sores uh, broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Then the second angel pulled, poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like the, uh, the blood of a corpse, and everything in the sea died. Now, these are very reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs, and they became blood. And this is all uh, uh, dealing with creation. Now, in the first, you know, these correspond with all the, 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 the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And the very first one is, remember the horse, the white rider that goes out waging war. Yeah, so that's one angle of the same event. This is a different angle. Creation is becoming undone because of the wickedness on the earth and uh, the oppression and um, 
all the violence and all the sort of thing that, that is wrapped up in this empire that is viewed as a, a dragon. And we see this idea that creation is becoming undone. We're going to come back to this, uh, but the flood narrative is very, very similar. And we're going to come back to talk about that in a second. Um, <clears throat> then the angel poured out uh, the bowl and the rivers and the springs, and they became blood. And I heard the angel who had authority over all water saying, you are just a holy one. And here we come with this idea of justice over and against God's wrath. So we're going to talk about that. You are just, O Holy One, who is and who was always was, because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. It's this idea that you reap what you sow. <clears throat> you shed blood, you're going to spill blood. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. So this song here begins with the idea of justice, talks about people reap what they sow, and then ends with justice again. Those themes are intermingled here. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with its fire. Everyone was burned by its blast of heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues. They did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give him glory. So here's this idea that people didn't turn. And this also is drawn from Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his heart in the face of God's judgment upon that uh, nation and that uh, empire. They did not turn to God and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. His subjects ground their teeth in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for the path for the pains and the sores, but they did not repent of their sins and deeds and turned to God. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl and the great Euphrates River. It dried up so that the kings from the east could march their enemies toward the west without hindrance. The kings of the east. Again, I'm going to say it again. If we're asking ourselves, well, who are the kings of the east? You know, we'll look for that one day. We're missing the point. That's not the point. Rome had a problem towards the east called the, Par the Parthians. This was an army they could not defeat. They rode on white horses. They were archers. And so this is an image that would have brought a lot of fear. It was kind of seared into uh, the, the conscious, the subconscious of the people in that first century Roman Empire. The Parthians, they're horrible. So what we have here is an image of... These kings, these evil kings coming in to destroy um, the Roman Empire. Now, um, I think I always think of uh, that movie, uh, The Hunt for Red October, right? You know, I, I love it because at the end, it ends in Maine, right? The Piscataquis <laughs> River or the Penobscot, or Penobscot Bay, yeah. They steal this, uh, the Russian sub. But back then, it was the Cold War. And so the bad guys are always Russians there, you know, in, in these American movies. Uh, Americans are the good guys and... Uh, they steal, a, they steal a Russian sub, and, or I guess he defects. But anyway, um, that, those movies capitalizing on this fear, this Cold War fear, that's what this is like. It's picturing these kings coming over this dried up Euphrates River, and it's the Parthians, the, the ones that the, the Romans had a real hard time. So it's instilling fear. It dried up. The kings from the east could march their armies toward the west toward, without hindrance. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. Again, Exodus leaped from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, 
a false prophet. They are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all the rulers of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord and the great judgment, the day of the Lord Almighty. Verse 15, we're almost done. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all those who are watching for me, who keep their clothes ready so they will not have to walk around naked and unashamed. And here you have it. Like every chapter, there's this one line that's very clear. Here's the point. <laughs> Blessed are those who are watching and ready, who are faithful, who are looking to God, not to society for deliverance, not to the empire for deliverance and all that it promises, but to God and to Jesus, the lamb that is slain. Right? And the demonic spirits gathered, verse 16, and all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. I've been to Megiddo. Megiddo is a town, and it's on a hill. It's on a man-made hill, and below it is a valley. So in Hebrew, a uh, hill or mountain is Har, so I visited Har Megiddo, which sounds a lot like Armageddon. And so this valley that this, this place would look over was the location of several key battles in Israelite history, and so it becomes pictured as this place where the world will end, and all the powers of evil and all the powers of good will meet uh, Armageddon, and it will be called Armageddon, and it's near the Har Megiddo, the town, and it's, it's not even, I don't think, a natural mountain. I think it's man-made, you know, they put this build up and put the city on top, um, but it does have a nice valley out there. And so it's pictured, again, they're using images that people would understand. Oh, this valley where all these battles take place. It's all very symbolic, but speaking about a, a reality behind the church in the first century. Okay. <clears throat> then the seventh angel poured... I know, we're getting long here. We've got a yawn coming. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air. The mighty uh, shout came from the throne of the temple saying, it is finished. There's our theme again. Then the thunder crashed and rolled and lightning flashed. A great earthquake struck the worst since people were placed on the earth. Wow. The great city of Babylon, which is the Roman Empire, um, split into three sections and the cities of many nations fell uh, into heaps of rubble. God remembered all of Babylon's sins and made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island disappeared and all the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm and um, hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. They cursed God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. So the sections, the ending will continue in different section, sections that go together. But that's our passage. Um, so just a couple thoughts. And again, one of, what I'm trying to address is this idea that even makes me uncomfortable, is this idea of the wrath of God and these images that seem so violent and um, seem off-putting. Um, first of all, wrath. Uh, can come off as a, there's, there's a couple terms associated with it. One is an emotional one that can be translated anger, which is talking about a, an emotional response. Um, often though, in, in situations like this, it's more of a forensic term. It has to do with justice and setting things to right, setting things uh, to right that are all, you know, that are wrong in the world. 
um, people being cheated, people being, um, we talked about the system being broken. We talked about the health system and, and um, how uh, Graham was mentioning it and just, it's broken. And I remember talking to a doctor recently after an experience that I had and I was sharing it with her and she said, yeah, the system is broken. Um, and so what we're talking about in Revelation are systems that are broken. Um, oftentimes when we, we hear about the world and the sins of the world and the world will be judged and um, <clears throat> God and God's people over and against the world, the, when we hear the world, um, we're thinking of the systems of the world and the ways of life and the ways, uh, the mechanics of economy and all of that and that they are broken and there needs to be something done about it. And so when we read Revelation, we see this justice, this wrath, this more of a forensic term that is finally coming to pass. It doesn't necessarily mean that God's angry with us. And I don't know why we have a big issue with that because this is important because we do hear more in the Bible about God's wrath than love, actually. It comes up more often. And one of the things that I think that people wrestle with, I wrestle with this, and I, I'm willing to bet everyone wrestles with this, is I, I don't feel loved. I don't feel like I can be loved. I feel like I'm beyond love and that God doesn't love me and God's angry with me. And I think that at the heart of discipleship and following Jesus is coming to an understanding that God loves us. We often put it as a, here's what we need to believe about God. Here's what we need to believe about Jesus. And what I'm discovering is that what I need to learn to believe is what God believes about me. <laughs> That's the hard part. God loves me. That's what's hard to accept. And I, I'm beginning after, I don't know how many decades I've been doing this, but I'm finally beginning to realize that I think that's the big hurdle yeah. is accepting and realizing that God loves us. And so with all these books like this, you know, we struggle with it because we feel like we read it and feel like it's just tapping into something deep down. We feel like God's mad <laughs> at us. Um, <clears throat> so two points I want to make about God's wrath and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, I got this from J.I. Packer, by the way, in the book, uh, his classic, Knowing God. God's wrath is judicial. As I mentioned, it's more of a forensic term than a, one of emotion. Um, <clears throat> and wrath in here comes against a lie. It comes against this parody. It comes against these things that say, here's your answer when it's not really an answer. It only leads to more suffering. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the scholar Bauckham uh, puts it this way. Um, the imperial power of Rome is in the eyes of John a system of political tyranny and economic exploitation founded on conquest and maintained by violence and oppression. That is the reality that the, the first church is living in. Um, maintained by violence and oppression, economic pressure, um, and they are suffering. And the head scratcher here is God is saying, remain faithful in the midst of your suffering. Okay, and that's a hard one. We'll get to that when we close. The second thing about wrath. Uh, so first, it's, it's judicial. It's, it's God's justice coming to earth, these systems being toppled. And then second, this one's interesting. God's wrath is chosen. 
God's wrath is chosen. It said there earlier that all the people that took the mark, everyone who believed the lie and went down with the system, they're the ones that are going down with the system. Judgment is coming against this system. And there are people who are standing by it saying, this is true. I believe in it. And books like this with, with the great graphic images and color are saying it's not true. Mm -hmm. This system is going to be judged. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking about um, the current reality in, in Ukraine. Um, and this is not, I'm not trying to get into politics, but just some simple observations. And I think that, that we would all agree with. You, you have a, a country like Russia that is uh, marching in and, and taking something by conquest. And there's fallout to that. Um, there's going to be economic fallout because Ukraine uh, produces a lot of, it's like the bread, one of the bread baskets of the world. So there's going to be uh, issues with food and economy and all that that are affected by this. Uh, I heard NPR, the, just trying to get boats out uh, with produce is very difficult because of the Russians. Um, I've seen Russian uh, like athletes wear Ukraine colors um, and they're suffering uh, because of that. They're being persecuted by their own country. And the message of revelation likewise would be remain faithful, <laughs> stand against what is unjust and remain faithful in the face of that suffering. Um, <clears throat> I've seen where um, there are athletes from Russia who want to compete like at Wimbledon uh, the tennis, uh, one of the majors, the second major, third major of the year, and uh, they did not allow people from Russia to perform. So now we have athletes that are being um, told they cannot come and, and perform. And we don't know, are they pro-Russian? Are they, do they stand against Ukraine? We don't know. Um, probably a little bit of both. Uh, but there's fallout from that. And... Um, if and when this comes to a head for Russia and Russia falls and gets beaten back or whatever, um, the people that feel like this is a good move and are kind of on board with it are going to suffer with it. Think of apartheid, when apartheid falls in South Africa and uh, people that are invested and have built, uh, uh, you know, they've invested money and they've grown, they've, uh, their money has grown and their power has grown and their status has grown under this system. And then when it falls, there's fallout. And so what we see is that justice is meted out, that the wicked are overturned, these, oppression, these oppressors are overturned, and people suffer because of it. Right? And so we come back to that statement, the wrath of God is cause for celebration. This is something that is good, that is happening. Something is happening now that should happen. You know, the fall of fascism or communism, or we could go on and on and on to any sort of system that's set up. And what Revelation pictures it as a monster that's judged and that God's wrath comes out on that, those systems of injustice. And the people that have bought into it fall with it. And that's where we see the, that's where we see that celebration that this is a good thing because the earth is suffering under this and people suffer under this. I read this. Um, this is from the book, award-winning book called Exclusion and Embrace uh, by Wolf. He, um, I don't know if he was Croatian or Serbian or whatever, but he, he's had people that suffered uh, during the 90s when that was... Um, he asked the question, 
Is there a way of making sense not only of the language of divine conquest, like in Revelation, but of the phenomenon of divine violence in Revelation? He's like, how do we make sense of this? There are people who trust in the infectious power of nonviolence. <laughs> Sooner or later, it will be crowned with success. In this belief, however, one can smell a bit too much of the sweet aroma of a suburban ideology entertaining, entertained often by people who are neither courageous nor honest enough to reflect on the implications of terror taking place right in the middle of their living rooms. The road of nonviolence in the world of violence often leads to suffering. One can sometimes break the cycle of violence only at the price of one's life as the example of Jesus demonstrates. If history is any guide, the prospects are good that non-violence will fail to dislodge violence. Will not patient appeals to reason make people want to abandon the unreason of violence, however? To think that we can reason ourselves and others into making the right kinds of choices, especially the costly choices of eschewing violence, is to forget that reason and freedom are never pure, never situated in some neutral territory in which arguments are weighed, and and <laughs> are weighed judiciously and choices made without bias. Reason and freedom are always implicated in the relations of power. These relations muddle reason and misdirect choices. One must want peace in order to be, to be persuaded to be peaceful. One has to want to embrace the other in order to be reasoned into embracing the other. I love that. You got to want it. And what we see with this judgment and the suffering that falls is that people have chosen and that's that's where it starts we have this beautiful garden and in chapter three there's a choice the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil that's where the story starts and then the next chapter it's violence and so the message of revelation is similar to genesis what are we going to choose and this violence being poured out and the people that go down with it, as hard as, as it is to accept, is this idea that people are going to go down there. Not everyone will be convinced. And so I hope that brings, this is kind of heady, this is not typical uh, for a Sunday, but um, I hope it helps us get a grasp of that issue. That's the point of bringing this up. The good news that is always there for us to choose is that God loves us and that the offer is always there to turn to God, to receive that love, and to be empowered in the face of evil. And so I think, you know, books like uh, Revelation are asking us um, is, uh, <clears throat> what are we being called to stand against? What will it cost you? What are we being called, who are we being called to stand with? And what will it cost us? And the really good news is that as we choose God and we choose God's ways, God's love is poured out. And that we will not always suffer. The world will not always suffer. 
that God's spirit is working, that God's patience is working as well. And it's a costly patience. People suffer under these oppressive systems. But God is at work. And there's always a choice to be with God and to follow and to love and to experience that love. And I love that here as well as any book that we read in the Bible, that the invitation is there to all to turn and follow and experience that love and that rejoicing. And we see there that the slain lamb lives again. Um, resurrection or, or suffering. It feels like it in the moment, but suffering is not the end. And whatever you bring this morning that you are suffering through, that is not the end of the story. Amen. God's love and justice and righteousness and salvation and resurrection. That's the end of the story. And when we're suffering, that's all we feel. That's all we see. It, it consumes all of our attention. But that's not the end, right? That's, that's good news.